Grown in Limpopo, Mpumalanga and KwaZulu-Natal province, macadamia nuts has become one of Mzanzi's major export crops. And this week, we share tips for new farmers to get started. We're back with Meadow Feeds, who farmers turn to for more than just feed. Gareth Salmond, ruminant technical advisor at Meadow Feeds, talks to us about the basics of pig breeding for a profitable enterprise. Our book of the week is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And our farmer top of the week comes from Nomalanga Pascal, KwaZulu-Natal farmer and HR practitioner. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 124 of Farmer's Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Let's get straight into that promise guide to starting a macadamia nut farm in South Africa. Nicole Ludolf chats to our expert from the Agricultural Research Council, Mark Painter. Thank you so much, Dawn. Now, Mark, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? How did you get into researching macadamia nuts? I study plant physiology at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, got my master's degree in 96, graduated 97 and started working for the ARC in 97. Worked for a few years on other crops, primarily avocado, lychee, mango, and then around 2001 started doing work for the macadamia industry and basically it escalated from there to the point where all my work is currently on macadamia. So we do a fair bit of plant physiology in the field, post-office physiology in the lab. Over the years, I've also taken over the macadamia evaluation programs, currently evaluating new cultivars for the industry. Can you tell me about maybe the overall lifespan of a macadamia tree? You're looking at about two to three years for the first nuts to be on the tree. At that point, it's a really small crop. You're looking at a handful of nuts. So you're not looking at being economically viable you're probably going to get bigger crops by year four or five, again, depending on the cultivar, but you're looking at breaking even on an established farm. So if you're an established grower growing another crop, you've already got all your infrastructure, tractors, buildings, everything in place, and you're just switching to macadamias, you're probably looking at a macadamia orchard breaking even at around year six to seven. That's for an established farm. If you are a new farmer, just bought a piece of land starting from scratch with no infrastructure in place and you still have to put in all the irrigation and buy the equipment and build the shed, you're probably looking at about 11 years to break even. It's not a short-term crop. There are farms, particularly in sort of impoverished communities that are being listed by like the Department of Agriculture, you often see crops being grown between the macadamia rows and quite often you'll see farmers that are switching from field crops sort of more plantation type crops like papaya, bananas, that sort of thing, you will often see the max being established in established plantations. So you'll see a banana field with macadamias planted between the bananas until they're big enough to be producing, at which point the bananas are taken out. It's not an ideal situation, but you know, it's a reality. You need cash flow when you're farming. When do you plant the trees and when is harvesting season? There's very few areas that are not amenable to planting year-round and particularly the coastal areas with a climate skewed more towards tropical and subtropical growers do plant year-round. Your inland regions, which are more subtropical, people tend to avoid planting midwinter, especially if it's areas where the temperatures go down below 10. Planting season is going to depend a little bit on your climatic zone. In the harvesting, in established orchards, you're looking at your harvest 
start, again, depending on where you are, coastal regions are milder. You can probably expect the early cultivars to be maturing late February, early March, but most areas you look at mid to late March, April for the harvest to start. It's basically when the nut on the most cultivars start falling off the trees. Is there any specific climate that macadamia nuts prefers above all else? You have to take into account sort of the background of macadamia. They are a subtropical species. They prefer subtropical climate. They're definitely not a deciduous species. If you have frost, basically don't plant them. That would be my advice. On the opposite end of the scale, the hotter areas, macadamias tend to stop photosynthesizing at around 33 degrees centigrade. So if you've got ample water in hot areas, you're not going to lose your trees, but you're certainly not going to have a productive tree. Water-wise, we recommend a minimum of 800 to 1,000 moles if you plant in dry land. But if you plant in dry land, those, that rainfall has to be in the, the time of your peak demand. So that's from around flowering, August or so. Your primary water need is between August and late January, early February. That's the period from flowering to oil accumulation. I wanted to know, maybe in general, if you're able to tell me maybe some of the challenges that face a macadamia farmers in the industry. The biggest challenge, I think, getting your hands on trees. There's a lot of guys who have committed themselves. They know they're going to plant macadamias. They're going ahead, getting their lands ready, and then they realize, actually, there's a three-year wait, maybe even longer for trees. So that's probably the first challenge to deal with. In terms of finances, the other challenge for a new grower is probably getting the farm infrastructure right. You have specific on-farm needs when you're planting mac. The macadamia comes off the tree with the nut inside a shell, and the shell is enclosed in a fairly tough green husk. That husk has to come off very early. The day you pick up the nut, that husk has to come off. And there's people, they jump in, they plant, and then they get their first crop, and suddenly they realize they need equipment on farm that they hadn't planned for. So having the right equipment on farm is critical. There's probably three or four equipment produced for specialized macadamia equipment. Then they need to cure those nuts on farm. Once they pick up the nuts and they dehusk them, they have to be cured on farm. They need drying bins for that. When it comes to pests, what kind of pests do macadamia nut farmers face? The most difficult to deal with right now is stink bug. They are around in large numbers. They have to be controlled. They have to be weekly scouting for stink bug during the bearing season. The stink bugs in South Africa are slowly becoming resistant to our major pesticides. There's a number of other pests. There's two moth species, the macadamia nut borer and false codling moth, and scripts as well. They target flowers and target new flushes. And there's a new pest that's recently come into South Africa in the last four or five years, the felted cosset, which is starting to make inroads. And that is something that's been having to be dealt with. Lastly, do you have any tips or pieces of advice for aspiring macadamia nut farmers? Um, your logistics and your finance, if you're going to be commercial and you're going in for the long term, there's non-negotiables like land preparation, fertilization, buying good quality trees, getting your spraying equipment, Talk to SAMAC, make contact with SAMAC. They're an industry body. At the moment, the industry works off a statutory levy. As an incoming grower, just understand you're going to be contributing to a statutory levy. And that statutory levy goes towards financing research, but also financing the SAMAC body. Up to three or four years before you plan to plant, get a list of nurseries. Um, SAMAC, one of the services they provide is a list of accredited nurseries. So through SAMAC, get that nursery list and make contact with the nurseries in the area where you're planning to plant. Get your pre-order in early. Start the process of the specialized on-farm equipment that you're going to need. You're going to need dehusking facilities and you're going to need drying facilities. The last, find out everything you can about the crop. There's quite a lot of macadamia consultants out there.
Thanks, Nicole, and great having you, Mark Painter, from the Agricultural Research Council. Now we're back this week with Meadow Feeds, who farmers really turn to for more than just feed. Gareth Salmond, Ruminant Technical Advisor at Meadow Feeds, talks to us about the basics of pig breeding for a profitable enterprise. Gareth, tell us a bit about your career in agriculture, just as a start so we can get to know you. I've met some of your colleagues as part of this campaign that we're doing with Meadow Feeds. But just to tell people, you know, what you do at Meadow Feeds and also just a bit about your career in agriculture. Thanks, Dawn. I studied at the University of Pretoria. I did a BSc in animal science. That was the start of my career in animal science. And then I followed that on with a master's degree in animal nutrition. From there, I started at Meadow Feeds. And as you mentioned, I'm now currently working as a divisional technical manager for SWAN, which involves a lot of farm visits, the nutritional part of things, and then the general management of our SWAN portfolio. Now, that brings us to today's topic, which is focused on going back to the basics when it comes to pig feeding for a profitable enterprise. And maybe I'll just start about, you know, just more about your work at Meadow Feeds. What do you enjoy most about your position and also just the work that you're doing? Dawn, I would say that I enjoy being in an industry where research and knowledge of swine nutrition continues to develop as a fast rate globally. And at Meadow Feeds, we are able to push ourselves to be part of this continued growth whilst incorporating these nutritional developments into our product range. Obviously, the type of feed is important for any farmer. Now, is the type of feed given to pigs important and how do you go about a feed formulation when it comes to pigs? I would say the term well-balanced diet is a good example here. It is often used to describe our eating plan as human beings. For pigs, it is no different. For them to reach peak performance, it is essential to meet all their nutritional requirements through a well-balanced diet. In terms of feed formulation, some important aspects to be considered as a nutritionist include determining the most effective energy level for the respective growth period. Another important aspect is to determine the lysine and energy ratio for the growth period. Worth mentioning here is that the amino acid lysine is a constituent of protein and is vitally important due to it being the first limiting amino acid for pigs. We also determine the remaining amino acid ratios according to this predetermined lysine level. We set the mineral, vitamin, and salt levels for the feed, followed by setting the remaining nutrient and feed additive requirements. And lastly, we set the raw material ingredient inclusions according to the growth period. As I understand it, meadow feeds are several different products available to the market when it comes to pig feed. Why is this? A pig's nutrient requirement changes according to its growth, development, feed intake, and physiological state. For this reason, we need different products to closely match a pig's specific nutrient requirements. A good example of this is defined by the term phase feeding. Phase feeding helps to avoid under or oversupplying nutrients to pigs for extended periods of time, which can either result in a reduced growth performance of the pigs or a waste of money. Gareth, you've spoken about the changing of feed requirements, but what about how a farmer uses feed? Is there a difference in that as well? Yes, most definitely, Dawn. Feed cost is 60 to 70% of the total cost of a pig operation and is therefore one of the most important contributors to the success of the operation. Ensuring the correct feed allocation is important because inaccurate diets or incorrect feeding levels decrease feed efficiencies and increase costs. After the correct feed allocation has been determined, feed space and the stocking density of the pigs should be the next areas of attention. 
it is a good idea to evaluate whether your feeder design, place and management thereof is correct. Some signs to consider when doing so is to look out for the amount of pig fighting around the feeder, pan coverage of the feeder and physical feed wastage. Now Dawn, perhaps another important aspect worth mentioning here is the form which the feed comes in can also make a difference. Research shows that pelleted as opposed to mash fed feeds increase the amount of available nutrient to the animal, creates less dust and feed wastage and promotes better feed conversion. Using the correct particle size is another important aspect of feed form and will ensure optimum feed digestibility. Now, Gareth, this does sound like a lot for a new farmer to take in. What are some of the other advice that you can give, especially for a beginner farmer? It is a lot to take in. Just remember, these are all areas which a qualified technical advisor from Meadow Feeds can definitely help our farmers with. Do you have also some advice in terms of, you know, farmers spending time in the field, perhaps something that you have seen and come across often? One thing that pops into my head straight away is the importance of feed planning so as to ensure a consistent supply of feed. Pigs are very sensitive to feed disruptions. The running out of feed for lengthy periods of time can result in reduced growth rates, reduced feed digestibility, increased stress, health disruptions, and increased aggression. The same importance should be put on water disruptions. There seems to be major differences between feeding a breeding pig compared to a pig reared for market. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on this one? Your breeding pigs, namely your goats and sows, are fed for longevity and productivity to be able to produce several litters of pigs over a long period of time. Whilst the pigs reared specifically for market, what I call finisher pigs, are fed to reach slaughter weight in the shortest time possible. The key to a good goat and sow feeding program is to monitor and control their body weight, body condition, and age whilst maintaining a healthy digestive system. For these animals, we tend to follow a more restricted feeding program. Whereas the key to a good finisher pig feeding program is to ensure that the correct nutrient and ingredient allocation is continuously met for a high, efficient and cost-effective growth rate. For these animals, we tend to follow an unrestricted feeding pattern. Although these pigs are managed very differently when older than 10 weeks of age, it is worth mentioning that prior to this, the use of highly digestible feed ingredients will assist pigs get off to a good early start in terms of growth and health something which will result in the improved performance of both goats and finisher pigs later on in life. Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track, Gareth. Do you have any closing remarks or something that you'd like to leave our farmers listening with, especially around, you know, going back to the basics when it comes to breeding pigs and everything around feed and production in general? I think just in closing, we have discussed a lot about feed and management thereof. However, it is important to remember that swine performance is multifaceted. To really get the best results from your feeding program, the farm should also consider the genetics of the pigs, housing and environment of the pigs, the management level, water quality, and also the health of the herd. Thanks so much for joining us here once again on Farmers Inside Track. Gareth Salmond, Ruminant Technical Advisor at Meadow Feeds. Next up, and before we let you go, our book of the week is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Here's the author talking more about this book and why he wrote it. Infinite Game is exactly the same. It's me on my journey, which is the same journey that we're all on, which is I'm living in the world, I'm functioning in the world, I'm an idealist, I talk about the world I want to live in, and quite frankly, I got tired 
of people in power, people who run companies, people who work on Wall Street, telling me that I'm naive, I'm stupid, and I don't understand how business works. And when I discovered this little book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Carsey that was written in 1986, it gave me a whole new perspective on how the world actually works. That we are, at all moments of all days, players in games that have no finish lines. There's no such thing as winning friendship. There's no such thing as winning in marriage. If you think you're going to be number one in your marriage, it's not going to go well. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. And yet you listen to so many leaders, and they talk about being number one, being the best, beating their competition. They have no idea what world, how the world is actually working. They're playing with the wrong mindset for the game that they're actually playing. And when you play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, you damage trust, you damage cooperation, and you hurt innovation, and eventually the organization struggles and goes into decline. For me, this little idea, the reason I wanted to write about it, is this is a world is flat moment. All that discomfort that so many of us have at work, and we're told by the powers that be and those that work in finance that we're the naive ones, yet we're still uncomfortable with the way these things are going. This is the world is flat moment, as I said. It turns out that they don't understand how business works. And we're onto something. And I wrote this book for two reasons. It wasn't to convince or convert anybody. It was a rallying cry to anyone who thinks that the way that we're conducting business these days, the kind of form of capitalism that we've built, that there's, there's something wrong with it. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it feels uncomfortable. And it was also to show us what finite-mindedness looks like so we can recognize finite-minded companies and finite-minded leaders so we can avoid working for them. This, was my, this is like a little manifesto of the world that could be, and I hope it's one more step to advance in this world in which we can wake up inspired, feel safe, and return home fulfilled. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. It's super fresh, it's super soft, and it makes any meal a treat. It's super sure bread and super sure flour. A proud member of the VKB Group. From breakfast to lunch and even birthday cakes, Supershow makes the whole family smile. Find Supershow on Facebook or visit vkb.co.za for more info. VKB, for the love of the land. Remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. Now you know we can't let you go without sharing that farmer tip of the week. And this week we're joined by Nomalanga Pascal, KwaZulu-Natal farmer and HR practitioner. She has a few tips on how new farmers can apply for agricultural finance and investment. Partnerships are very important. The value chain is quite broad within the agricultural sector. At a high level, when we're talking value chain, we're talking from the input side, from the production side, from the processing side from the distribution side and then from the consumption side. So you have to decide where you want to play and why. And in all those sectors, there are established captains of the industry. You have to work with the existing players for this transformation to happen because that is what the funders will look at as to where are you positioning yourself. You have to look at farming as a business not as, by the way, a whiling away time hobby. As you said, it is not for the faint-hearted. 
So we have a lot of work that government, private sector, the commodity companies, etc., are involved in. So it's just for you to be able to do your research and be able to see who you'd like to come to. And our Farmer Tip of the Week from Nomalanga Pascal, KZN Farmer and HR Practitioner, brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you loved it, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. And be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Dawn Numdu, our producer, Megan van der Fent, and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team have an awesome week further. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.